I'll get those passed out there. We'll give you some instructions in a few minutes here. So just, so just get a, a name tag handy, and, uh, and we'll come back to that in just a couple minutes after we, uh, we, we pray and get into the sermon here for a few minutes. Also, while we're finishing up passing those out, uh, there are life group questions and an area for your study notes here during the sermon. Uh, we don't have a lot of content like we've had the last couple of weeks, but we do have uh, plenty of space for you to take notes. Uh, during the sermon today, I'll be mentioning like three dozen scripture passages, uh, so you may want to write those down as we're, as we're going along here uh, for your own study later on. So uh, note that in the worship guide there, you can... Uh, follow along. There are a few blanks that we'll fill out along the way. Let's go ahead and uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge first and foremost that you are holy, that you are Lord God Almighty, that you are the creator of the universe. You are the name above all names. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Lord of all lords. And so as we, as we approach you now, we do that humbly, in a posture of humble adoration, on our knees, faces to the ground before you, arms outstretched to receive you. Lord, we ask in our worship that you would give us a glimpse of your perfection and glory. We ask that you'd give us a peek into your beauty and your majesty. That we would have hearts that beat with yours. That we would have minds that are in tune with yours. That we would have mouths that sing your praises. And Father, that you'd give us spirits that are animated by you. So, Lord, in this spirit of humility, we, we ask that you would hear our prayers. This church body knows many hurts and has many needs. This church body and the world outside of these four walls has many needs. And so we pray for all people, all needs. We pray for spiritual power and for strength for the tiring and emotionally draining work of mission. We pray for ETSU Campus Fellowship, whom we support. We ask that you would continue to bless their expansion efforts. We pray for the National Missionary Convention this December as they bring in thousands of people who represent the gospel all over the world, that they would be used in that time to hear your word, to be refreshed, to be sent out anew on mission for the sake of the cause of Christ. We pray for the the Greenville-Cumberland Presbyterian Church downtown. We pray that you would be with Pastor Jamie Lively. Father, we ask that you would continue to be close to those who are struggling with cancer and with sickness and disease. We pray for those among us who battle emotional wounds. We pray for those against us who battle against addictions. 
We pray for our country and its leaders. For ourselves, Lord, we pray for opportunities to communicate the gospel in word and in deed. And Father, we give you praise for answers, for completed adoptions, for healing of relationships, for increasing victory over sin, for provision of needs. Lord, for all these things, we give you thanks. And Lord, we ask that as we open your word, we just ask that you would feed us. That you would give us your truth in a way that gives us a renewed passion for your work. That we would continue to identify ourselves with you in a way which means our lives usher out with your spirit in ways that people see and experience. That you would give us chances for redemptive conversations as we leave this place this week. Lord, teach us what it means to make disciple makers. Give us hearts that are strong, that are empowered by your spirit, that are ready for spiritual battle. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. If you were at the church picnic uh, last Sunday night, go ahead and raise your hand. If you were at the church picnic last Sunday night, those of you who were there. Okay, cool. Those of you who were there uh, will experience, have experienced what I'm about to tell you. Those of you who weren't, uh, it was a lot of folks. We had about 220 people, 150 adults, 70 kids. It was a great time. And one of the things that was great about it is that on, the, on Sunday morning beforehand, during both services, Tommy, our, our associate minister, was very careful to say that what we want to do with this church picnic is to connect with folks you may not know. He said that very explicitly at the next step's time at the end of our service. He said that twice. And, and what happened there was exactly that. I think a lot of our folks who are veterans here at First Christian who have been around a while uh, took it upon themselves to go and meet people they didn't know. And, and, and those who did do that and those who didn't, about three dozen of them came up to me and said, now, now who's that lady over there? I don't know her name. Or, or who's that guy over there? And those kids over there, who do they belong to? You know, I had about three dozen people come up and ask me those kinds of questions. And so you know, we're, we're going into the series called Family Life. And we're going to talk today about sort of the, the, the theological undergirding for who a family is and what a family does and why they exist and why God created them. We're going to sort of talk about the theory and the theology and the biblical underpinning for that today. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about husbands and wives and, and marriages and, and even what it means to be a kid and what it means to disciple your kid. Uh, we're going to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, handling finances. I'm going to walk straight into your living room, and we're going to we're going to just straight out say, here is what's going on in a lot of families' lives, and we're going to get really practical about these kinds of things. And I'm just going to walk straight into your houses and lay down the business about what God says about these contexts, and pray I have a job after the series is over. Um, but what I want you to do here, as we talk about this family life issue, is I want you to do two things for me. I want to write down your name. First of all, write down your name first, first and last, either one. And then also how many years or how many months or how many days or uh, minutes you've been here at First Christian Church. So two things. One, your name. And secondly, how long you've been at FCC. You may say 25 minutes. <laughs> you may say, for a few of you all, 40 to 50 years. Uh, whatever, whatever is appropriate for you.
distracting if I put it on. I purposely got Tennessee orange, hoping this would be on the heels of a victory, but alas, it was quite ugly, wasn't it? So my name's Scott. I've been here 10 years. That's how you get to know who people are. You invest yourself in learning who they are by saying, this is who I am. Who are you? Families operate with good communication. And so I, I sort of wanted to do this as a, as a way for us to be aware of, of course, who, who each other is and what our names are, but also sort of how long we've been here. Because one of the things that we talked about last week at the church uh, picnic was uh, I had a number of folks say, listen, I mean, half these people, honestly, I, I, I recognize a lot of them, but a number of them I don't even know or I've not even seen. I don't even know their names. And this is appropriate for us as family because as we jump into a six-week series about family life, there are lots of parallels between the home family and the church family. There are lots of parallels. In fact, today we're going to see some cool stuff from Scripture about where this comes from, this concept of family, and the implications for our families in the narrow sense at home. I want to start by just uh, pointing out the first thing in the study notes there that we'll come back to in just a second. This is my, my sort of working definition about what a family is. That's at the top of your study notes. It says a family is a disciple-making factory. A disciple-making factory. A family is a disciple-making factory. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes when we look at uh, Abram and how that worked for him. Now, 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 when we say this, we've got to understand that the secret sauce to this is the Spirit of God. Okay? The Spirit of God is the secret sauce in this factory. So none of us can like single-handedly ensure 100% that, that our families, that our homes are going to be disciple-making factories as if it were like a turnkey operation, a one-for-one one relationship. Uh, we are able, however, to join with God and in His grace provide a culture of redemption for our families so that we can join with him in bringing sinners to redemption and into relationship with him. So this is where we're starting today. The family is a disciple-making factory. Let's look at where this comes from in Scripture. Look at Genesis 1, verse 1. Page 1 in the Pew Bibles, if you're looking up at the Pew Bibles. Genesis 1, 1. We're going to start here and look at some of the fundamental stuff about what it means to be a family. And it goes all the way back from the beginning, from God's purposes in creation. That's what, that's what we need to note. This is important. God's purposes in creating the world include this conception of family. We'll, we'll go all the way back to the beginning. It says this, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when it says in the beginning, it means the beginning of all time as we know it. Okay, Beginning of time as we know it, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that phrase, the heavens and the earth right there, is a Hebrew phrase that means everything. It means, you know, the, the planet Pluto that's no longer a planet, the rings around Saturn, uh, the galaxies beyond our own Milky Way. It means everything that you can think of in all of creation. That's what it means by saying heavens and the earth. So, 
So we start here in verse 1, which is an event itself. Verse 1 is an event itself. It introduces everything that follows as sort of a literary introduction, but it's also an event that, that, that begins to show what's going on here. So verse 2, and make sure you get this, verse 2 begins to narrow the focus of God's creative purpose, begins to narrow the focus on his project for humanity. He begins to narrow the fo- focus on his project for humanity by telling us about the earth. So look at verse 2 here. begins to narrow the focus on God's project for humanity. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now there's, there's something important you need to see here. Verse 2 begins to narrow that focus on humanity. And it tells us this by showing that the earth had no form. It was void. It means it was empty of purpose and meaning. It was just, just sitting there. The, the earth was just sitting there. Had no purpose, had no matter, without purpose. Some of you may remember uh, this chair from our Genesis series. This chair right here from our Genesis series. This chair right here, I'm going to ask you a question about this chair that, that some of you may remember. This chair right here doesn't exist because it's made of metal and it's put together in a particular kind of shape. That's not what makes this thing a chair. We look at an object and we think, that looks to me like everything that I've known as a chair. So that's why I call it a chair. But why we call that a chair is because what I can do with it. In other words, does it exist? Does this chair exist because I can see it or, or touch it or maybe like smell it? I don't know. Hey, it smells like a chair. Does this thing exist because I can measure it with empirical evidence? Because it has material qualities. It has molecular structure. Is that what makes this thing exist? Well, yes, on one level. That is what makes it exist. But this points out a certain quality about the first few chapters of Genesis that is very important to note. Something doesn't exist just because it has matter. In the ancient Near East, the people reading Genesis would have thought, something becomes alive when it does what it was made to do. That's important for us today. Something becomes alive in the ancient Near East and in the first two chapters of Genesis when it does what God created it to do. Its function, its purpose, its meaning being lived out is what makes something alive. Not just because it has, you know, protons and electrons and neutrons and lots of trons. Um, but for God, and in Genesis, this thing becomes a chair when I can sit in it and it works to hold me up. Now it's a chair. Now it does what it was intended to do. Which is to say that your presence here doesn't make you a Christian. The Spirit of God working in you does. By which you live to demonstrate Jesus being alive. This becomes a chair when it works as it's intended. Your family, this church, your life begins to work as God intended it to. Then you start to live. That's when you start to live. We'll see this all throughout the rest of Genesis here. And we're just going to do this in sort of a quick way. So 
So this principle about, about matter becoming alive extends to every area of our lives. And in Bible terms, it's only when we fulfill God's purposes for us will we really begin to live. And we see that right here in the first few chapters and the first few verses of Genesis. Only when the Spirit of God is working in our lives. Only when the Spirit of God is animating us and working in our lives. Look at Genesis 1, verse 2. It says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then midway through verse 2 it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Purpose and meaning now has come to fill that void. In fact, the rest of the creation account is God taking matter and making it matter. He made the matter in the first place, by the way, ex nihilo people. But he's taking this matter and he's making it matter. So look at verse 3. And God said, and God said, in other words, when God's voice speaks truth into that matter, it begins to matter. It says, let there be light, and there was Light. When the Spirit of God and His truth speaks, that's what gives something its functional existence. That's what means you become alive. That's what means when your family operates as His truth tells it to operate, and your marriage and your parenting, that's when you begin to matter. And you see, a lot of people think, a lot of people walk around in their Christian life and in churches cloistered with this conception that because I'm here, because I'm present, because I exist materially with my rear end on a pew, it matters. But that's not how it works. That's not what makes a family. We'll keep seeing that in a few minutes here. Let's not jump too far ahead of ourselves. He says, let there be light, and there was light. And it was the introduction of God's voice, his truth, that made the light. And as chapter 1 goes on, God makes something and he looks at it. And when he makes it, he says, man, that's good. He says it six times. He says, that is good. And at the very end, if you look at verse 31, this is cool. At the end of the first chapter, Verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was very good. So everything is, at this point in Genesis, it's working correctly. The birds are chirping. Flowers are blooming. You know, the smell of beauty is in the air. Until this. Chapter 2, verse 18. Turn there with me here. Chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis is telling us here a little more specific account of the creation of man and woman. But not all is at peace. Something's not quite right. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Everything is awesome. Everything's great. Birds are chirping. The smell of beauty is in the air. It's the Garden of Eden. And yet, something even then is not quite right. Something is not as... God intended it, yet. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. This is the only thing in all of the account of creation that is not good. And that means that fulfilling his purpose as a man created by God cannot help, and this is for Adam, the purpose for his life cannot be achieved without the help of, yes, a woman. Nudge, nudge. 
And we see this purpose here, this purpose for God's glory being made known, which was pr- talked about before in Genesis. It's talked about here in verse 15 of chapter 2. So the purpose is when the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so that's his purpose. And then God says, and you can't even achieve that by yourself. He says, you need someone else in this mission. And this is a parallel to Genesis 1.28, if you'll remember from our Genesis series, we hammer Genesis 1.28 time and time again. Genesis 1.28, where it says, Be fruitful and multiply. <clears throat> this is a parallel, verse 15 in chapter 2, to Genesis 1.28. The first thing in Genesis 1 that man hears from God, the first instructions verbally from God in all of the history of the universe is verse 28 in chapter 1. Be fruitful. And multiply. And so here it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It's that gardening kind of language again. So God made us basically to be gardeners, to be growers of God's creation. He made us to be growers, gardeners, keepers of God's creation, which Scripture elsewhere calls God's glory. So it says, be fruitful and multiply my glory to the world. He's saying, Adam, Eve, this is your job. Be fruitful and multiply. Not just make babies, but be fruitful and multiply my glory to the world. Your work is to make known my goodness and my glory. And what this has to do with family is that this truth extends to every single nook and cranny of our lives. And it isn't just about making babies as we traditionally think about it biologically. But there is real spiritual truth here in Genesis because this isn't just about the procreation of little people as if having lots of babies means you're you're more ably fulfilling God's goal. That's that's not what this means. This is a procreation of people who grow by God's Spirit. That's the project we're involved with. And it's right smack dab in the middle of the pages of Genesis. Our job is to procreate people who grow by God's Spirit. And that, that's something that every single one of us can have a part in. All of us is called to that project. Married, single, young, old, aunts, uncles, grandparents, everyone. This project of making God's glory known to the world is about making people who are truly alive by God's Spirit working in them. Now, don't miss this because this is huge, and it's why we started in Genesis. And this is why this Family Life series applies to everyone and not just those who are married and have kids. This massive work of God's project of creation is making known his glory, being fruitful and multiplying by making gardeners of people who are truly alive by God's spirit at work in them. So so whatever your conceptions of family are up to this point, if not informed by the Bible, I want you to basically throw them all away. Whatever your conceptions of family are up to this point, if not informed by Scripture, you should probably throw a lot of them away. Because a family is a place where God's Spirit is Father.
A family is a place where Christ is head. A family is a place where genetics don't make you, but the Spirit of God in you makes you alive. A family is a place where born again means you know that the work of Jesus Christ in the cross is the only possible hope you have to be a part of that family. Nothing else gets you in. Not your smarts, not your money, not your genetics, not your blood. In fact, it's definitely not your blood. So a family, as we've conceived of it, continues to narrow our view in a way which hinders how we do even our own families. Are you catching that yet? We'll get there later on, and we'll unpack it for six weeks. A family is a disciple-making project. Let's go ahead and prove this a little bit in Genesis here. Genesis 12 will continue to show you about this disciple-making project because really that's what a family is, whether we're talking about a narrow sense or a wide sense. Your family at home or this family at church. Look at Genesis 2, verse 2. This is God speaking to Abraham. Uh, He's actually called Abram here. He's soon going to be called Abraham. He's the father of the nation of Israel, God's people. And he, that is God, God is calling Abram to follow him, to follow him. And the New Testament word for follower is a disciple. That's key here. So God is calling Abram to be a disciple. Look at verse 2. God says this to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. Before that, he says, go from your country and your kindred to a place that I will show you. In other words, I'm going to go there and you will follow me. And then he says this, verse 2. When you follow me, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In other words, this is discipleship right here in Genesis. The purpose of discipleship, of Abram's following of God, is to bless others. And God is saying, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you follow me, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to others. That's discipleship. The work of Christ in your life given away to others. That's discipleship. It's making disciples of people. And that's the project we're talking about here. This purpose of discipleship is shown there. It's all over the New Testament. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. We don't have time for it, but uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. And then uh, keep reading in Genesis 12. It says this, the end of verse 3. God says, in you, this is him speaking to Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this discipleship project is something that happens for all of the families of the earth if they will call Jesus Lord. So so the truth about this whole project, and this is the, the first couple blanks here, the truth about this whole project we're talking about here is that what God is doing in creation and in your life and in your family is that God is forming for himself a family. That's the first couple blanks there. God is forming in this project for himself a family where he is father. And your presence here, if you know Christ is Lord, means you're a part of that family. God's creating for himself a family where he is father. Now think about this. We don't have time to look at all these scriptures, and so I'll just sort of name them and, and read them to you. Uh, but, but, but think about how scripture talks about this family concept. God, first of all, he reveals himself as a father. He reveals himself as a father, and he does that through his own son. John 10.30, this is Jesus speaking, I and the Father are one. John 14.2, Jesus speaking again, in my Father's house are many rooms. John 14.6, Jesus again, 
No one comes to the Father but through me. God is revealing himself to the world, to us, as a father through his son. It's in Psalm 68, 5. Those of you taking notes, Psalm 68, 5, Isaiah 64, 8, Matthew 6, 9, Luke 23. It's all over John. It's in Galatians 4. It's in Ephesians 2. It's in 1 John 3. You will not get away from God as Father because it's all over the pages of Scripture. Scripture also calls us His children. He also calls us his children. John 1, 12 to 13, awesome passage. If you're taking notes, John 1, 12 to 13, they say this, To all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now these children, verse 13 says, were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. So these children in this family have a new bloodline. These children in this family are reborn into a new identity and bloodline. They have God as Father and the Spirit indwells them and animates them. Psalm 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It's in Romans 8 where Jesus is called the firstborn in part because we are born after Him and through Him and reborn. We're called heirs. We're called brothers. We're called sisters. We're called even sons, small s. Jesus Himself says, Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Jesus himself, when he was speaking to a crowd and he was told that his mother and his brothers were outside waiting and wanted to talk to him, Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, he said, these are my mothers and my brothers. All over scripture, there are tons of cool scriptures about how we as children of God are adopted into his family. The whole book of Hosea, Hosea 14.3 says, In you orphans find mercy. Scripture uses language of us being adopted into his family all over the place. Psalm 68.5 and 6 says, Father to the fatherless is who God is. He's a defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. And then it said, God places the lonely in families. God is this, this global person seeking out those who can be a part of his family as a father to those who will call him father. There's tons of stuff all over the place. And the cool thing about this truth are the, is the next few blanks. He's creating for himself a family where he is father. And this family is called the church. And this family, the church, is where you learn to be that family, the home. I want us to think about two more passages quickly that that bring together these ideas that God is forming for himself a family and that fill out those study notes there. This family is where you learn to be that family. We don't have a lot of time to go through uh, these, but let's let's look at these couple passages. John 11, 50 through 52 
It's in page uh, 761 in the Pew Bible. John 11:50 to 52 is the first one. It's a fascinating passage because, because in this passage, uh, Caiaphas is the high priest. And, and Caiaphas is a high priest, and he's part of the Jewish ruling, ruling council. And he has just said, as they're plotting to kill Jesus, he's just said this in verse 50, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And Luke points out, verse 51, that he did not say this of his own accord. Luke points out that God used Caiaphas' wrong thinking about it as a prophetic statement about what Jesus was doing on the cross. It says, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And here it is. Check this out, verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the project of Christ in the cross. The gathering of his people is what's happening for him to come back and complete the work of creation. So what are families? In biblical terms, families are found. Where the words of Jesus and the will of God are treasured and obeyed. Families are found where the, where, where the words of Jesus and the will of God is treasured and it's obeyed. Because that's evidence of the Spirit's work in the lives of people. That makes Him head of your home. That makes Him in charge of your marriage. It is only under that kind of authority of Christ as head that any relationship fulfills God's purpose. You can manipulate your relationships. You can do whatever you need to do. And it won't Make Christ head of your home. You see, that's what we do, isn't it? We find ways to weasel, to weasel our, our needs in there. When the project is way bigger. It's only when Christ is head of your home. In biblical terms, families are found where the words of Jesus and the will of God are treasured and obeyed. And that family relationship in the Spirit of God is stronger than blood, stronger than genetics. Because Jesus' family is the family of forever family of people who love Him. And this is true about your family at home because of your family here. We don't have time for all of this, but Ephesians 5.32. If you'll, if you'll do some looking into Ephesians 5.32 on your own this week. Paul says there at the end of a long passage about husbands and wives. He's saying the truth about husbands and wives, husbands and wives is true because of Christ and the church. The mystery he's telling us about husbands and wives, about even children and parents in that passage, even slaves and masters, all those relationships, earthly relationships there in Ephesians 5. The truth about those relationships is that he's saying the mystery is that it's true because of Christ and his love for the church. And so that's the model. That's the model. Christ's sacrificial, selfless love for you to die on the cross is the model. And that's what tells us who we are as families, as husbands and wives. That's what tells us who we are as a church. 
So that this family is really the family just like at home that is alive by his spirit. And that was his purpose all along. We'll unpack this a lot more in the coming weeks. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven.